What's that sound? I wonder as I stand at the front of my college lecture hall and my students stare back at me. Is it the clock ticking away? Are the students hoping it will move a little faster? Nah, not in my class. Well, okay, maybe. But seriously, college is such a complex time, and these students have so much going on, both inside and outside the classroom. Am I teaching them how to think? I ask myself. Am I preparing them for their careers? Is the college experience getting them ready for that next step in their lives? Why am I asking myself so many questions? Should I be teaching right now? As I continue to talk and point at my presentation, I can't help but wonder as I look back out at my students, what is going through their minds? I only wish I knew. Well, I guess I could ask them that question. Maybe I could even listen to their answer. I am Dr. Brown. I am a university professor, and this is my Declassified College Survival Podcast. It's a place where the professor is quiet, mostly, and the students' voices are heard, really. Please join me every other week as I sit down with my students, and they can tell us directly how college is and is not impacting their lives. How do you navigate college? How does college help you navigate life? They will pick the topics. I will turn on the mic and we can all listen to what they have to say. Listeners, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself and then jump into a discussion about COVID-19. So I'm a biomedical science major. I'm originally from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm 20 years old and I plan to one day get my PhD in the biological sciences. Um, so that's just a little bit um, of background on me. And then I'd like to jump right in with some definitions um, to help us have this conversation about COVID-19. So I'm going to start with social distancing. Social distancing refers to the practice of maintaining six feet of physical distance from other people. So when I say social distancing, that's exactly what I mean. Um, I don't mean staying home at your house um, or anything like that. I simply mean in public spaces, keeping six feet away from other people. Now, shelter in place, that is an official order that directs people to stay in the indoor place they already occupy and not leave unless necessary. So that may be something that you know as quarantine or lockdown, and that's what I'll refer to it as when you're directed to stay inside your house and only leave for, for necessary things. Um, and then finally, I just want to point out that COVID-19 or the coronavirus disease is a disease that is caused by a virus known as SARS-CoV-2. So I will call it um, SARS-CoV-2, um, and then when I mention coronavirus or COVID-19, that will be um, talking about the disease that it causes. All right, so let's get into our discussion here. The first things that I want to talk about are the positive and negatives of both social distancing and shelter in place. So I'm going to go ahead and start with the three most positive consequences of social distancing. So the first one is that it limits the spread of the virus, right? If I um, am standing six feet away from you, it's less likely that um, the droplets that I may cough or sneeze are going to reach you. And also, right, we're not going to be touching, so any droplets on my hands, wherever else, won't get on you. 
And so then you can't get put them, you know, in in the orifices of your face um, so that you'll contract the disease. And right, that's valuable because it saves lives, right? So people who are vulnerable to the disease or, um, you know, just happen to have a really serious case, um, it will save their lives. Especially because for, for my third reason is because it flattens the curve. Um, so it kind of slows the, the process of, of spread in our communities, and so we don't overcrowd the hospitals, right? When we get overcrowding of the hospitals, that's when we see significant increases of death um, because the patients just can't be treated, they don't have enough beds, they don't have enough ventilators. And so it's really important to use social distancing because it slows that, that spread of the disease so that we can have enough enough space and enough resources to to treat the people who have it and need really significant treatment. And then let's also go through um, the three most positive consequences of sheltering in place. So sheltering in place really significantly slows the spread of the disease. Um, so if, you know, if sheltering, um, sorry, if social distancing Let's just say, for instance, if social distancing decreases spread by, by 20%, then sheltering in place probably decreases it by 60 to 80%. Um, it's significantly, significantly slower spread, right? So few people that you're, you're getting close to or coming in contact with, right? Because you're only going out for really essential things. So to the grocery store, to the pharmacy, um, things that you really can't live without. And that, again, saves lives, right? It saves lives because we're slowing the spread of disease, we're keeping people, we're keeping the hospitals open and having enough capacity to, to treat people who need it. And then finally, an unexpected consequence that we've had from sheltering in place is positive for the environment. So we've been seeing decreases in pollution because people are driving their cars less, which has been been really great for, for wildlife. So that is a an unexpected um, positive that we've had from this difficult <laughs> um, event of having to, to shelter in place. But there are also negatives to these, negative consequences to these policies, if you will. For social distancing, one of them is just having to change norms that we're, that we're really used to. So we're not used to having to keep, keep that much space um, in between each other, and it just feels, feels really weird. Um, that brings me to my second consequence, which is that I don't know what your experience has been, but in mine, people just aren't really good at doing it. So I'll go, I'll go to the grocery store, even I went to, to church this last week, and um, people, people either, I don't know if it's because they don't know how far six feet is, or because it's just simply too weird for them to, to stay that far away. It just seems like people aren't really, really capable of actually keeping that six feet apart. So that's kind of a negative consequence of, I guess, only using social distancing is that if we don't, you know, if we don't all do it, then it doesn't work, right? It doesn't do what it's supposed to do to decrease that spread to, to save lives. And then the final thing is um, mental health, right? So even, you know, keeping six feet apart can affect people's mental health just because we don't get, you know, maybe the that hug that you really like to get from your friend or, um, you know, a good hearty handshake, you know, just feeling really connected with people. Um, sometimes just keeping even that six feet of distance apart really keeps people from feeling connected. And so that can, can hurt their mental health. And then there are even more, right? Shelter in place is a, a heavier policy, right? It's even more restrictive. And so with it, we have even, you know, 
um, more drastic negative consequences involving this this economic recession that we're seeing right now. Um, you know, with record numbers of people losing their jobs, and it's just really, really difficult to see. And we have to, you know, there are questions about is it worth it? You know, and that's that's a hard thing to to weigh out, right? People are losing their livelihoods, and you know, they can't if they can't afford to eat, if they can't afford to to pay rent, then you know, is it really worth? Maybe it's worth it for them to to get the get the disease. And you know that is that's a difficult conversation that I'm not going to totally totally weigh out right now. And I think the answer perhaps is, is somewhere in the middle, right, between instituting policies that are smart to to protect people from from disease and from right that unnecessary growth of the curve, right, that overwhelms hospitals. But at the same time, thinking about people's economic needs and you know how important those obviously are to to their health and their livelihood as well as you know there are other other ways to combat that than coming out of shelter in place which are to you know the economic stimulus bill that came out and things like that and the next thing is the next negative consequence is mental health right again this one especially is really hard for people you know experts say that that depression anxiety um, and just loneliness um, are definitely increasing during these times. Um, it's really hard, especially if you live alone, to to not go out and, and see people. That, that emotional support is really necessary to us as humans, and so removing it can really, really harm people. And then finally, the final negative consequence is just that, that people are afraid. Um, they're afraid to, to go to the hospital because of COVID-19, and so they're, they're dying of um, some more minor diseases like their appendix bursting because they're just afraid to go to the hospital. That's a that's a very treatable problem, but you have to have to go at the right time. And so it's just really sad to see that in our in our communities. So yeah. So think about those for a second, what those have looked like for you. Um, if you can think of any other positive and negative consequences and really thinking about, you know, weighing them together. It's really it's a really complicated situation to think about. You know, the economic versus the health, the the mental health versus physical health. Trying to trying to find that that good middle ground where you know we're protecting as many people as possible. And I'm gonna take a short break and be right back. Welcome back. I know that break is only a few seconds for you, but for me it's a sip of water and a deep breath. So thank you for your patience. The next topic we're going to delve into is what possible manners social distancing policies could affect the evolution of the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus 2, also known as SARS-CoV-2. That's how I'll refer to it. We're going to focus on um, social distancing policies, right? So that was what I talked about earlier about keeping six feet apart as states begin to open. This is kind of what we're, what we're trying to keep right now. Um, so we're going to focus on that in this segment. Social distancing policies might cause SARS-CoV-2 to live on surfaces longer, um, spread more easily, or even make people cough harder um, or, you know, spit further when they cough um, just to, to cover a larger radius, right? Spread those droplets out a little bit more, right? And hopefully those things would help the virus to, to spread more easily, um, not hopefully for us, but, you know, for the virus's purposes, right? Its goal is to, to spread to more people. So it's trying, you know, some of the 
right? The question is, could social distancing, right, that keeping of six feet apart, create selective pressure that would allow certain strains of the virus um, to, to live longer or to, to permeate more of the, the population, um, significantly more than, say, another strain of the virus? Um, but ultimately, I do not think that social distancing um, would or could significantly affect the evolution of SARS-CoV-2, um, and in this segment, I'm going to kind of explain why. Um, so my first reason is just because of how mutation works in um, the SARS-CoV-2 virus and what we kind of already know about that. So first of all, I want to explain what a mutation is. So a mutation is a change in a genome sequence that can be caused by many different things and you know, affect the genome in many different ways. Um, I'm not going to get into that, but, you know, it can be as small as a single base change um, or even change um, a whole codon, um, but we won't get into that. And in this case, um, the change would be in the RNA because um, SARS-CoV is an RNA virus. And so what we do know about SARS-CoV-2, it has a slow mutation rate. Um, so that means that as the genomes of new isolates um, are studied, there are not many differences. And a virus, um, I should explain, a virus isolate is a virus that has been isolated from a patient, right? So, um, you know, they they get the, the sample from the patient and um, they can get the genome um, for the virus from from that patient. And there are, there are differences in, in these isolates between the patients. And these are, are mutations and changes uh, to the genome. And um, so what it means that it has a slow mutation rate is that they're finding that there aren't that many differences, you know, significant numbers based, based on other viruses um, that we've studied. There aren't that many differences between these different isolates. And so that shows that this virus is mutating at a slow rate. Um, and that is good for a vaccine, right? So hopefully if we uh, created a vaccine, right, the Hopefully, right, we don't know for sure, but that would mean that the virus would, wouldn't be able to mutate to fight against that um, very quickly, um, like we see with the flu where we have to have a new vaccine every, every year. What that also means, right, is that the virus isn't changing that quickly. Um, so, you know, things that we do, like social distancing, uh, may not affect it as much as we think they maybe could, um, just because it's changing so slowly. Um, and my next, my next thing I want to focus on is mutations as mistakes. So mutations are essentially mistakes um, in the DNA or, or damage to the, not the DNA, sorry, the RNA of this virus. Um, mistakes or, or damage to the RNA that cause changes, like we said, to the genome. And these mistakes, they have to occur before they can be selected for. So ultimately, if social distancing slows the infection rate, um, then it will slow the mutation rate, right? Because it mutates when it's in your body, right? So those new isolates are made um, when the that RNA virus is replicated inside your body. That's where those mistakes are made by the RNA polymerase. So essentially more hosts causes more mutation. And so if social distancing is going to slow that infection rate, then it can also slow that mutation rate. Um, so there's another reason that we may not see, right, significant evolution caused by social distancing um, because it's doing its job. Another thing is that, right, that slowing is, is good because it kind of removes this pressure from, from the virus. So existing immunity within a population adds pressure to the virus, right, to change and to mutate. While, you know, when there are always, not always, but when there are more people in a given population to infect, 
that haven't had the virus ever before, so they have no immunity against it, the virus kind of has the ability to, to stay the way it is um, without having to change very much because it's still able to, to infect the people around um, and continue kind of living in a sense. You can have, have another argument with another scientist about whether viruses are living. Um. <laughs> another thing is that we would likely see selection for more virulent types of disease. Um, so more virulent strains. Um, virulent essentially just means like worse. <laughs> in a sense, um, right, they're more transmissible or, or cause more negative effects. So we would see more virulent versions of this virus um, perm, you know, be, be more significant or prevalent even without social distancing, right? So any um, strain of COVID-19 that causes, you know, that is able to, to, you know, make someone cough more or is able to live longer on surfaces um, ultimately would still be selected without um, that extra pressure from social distancing, right? So, you know, the question is how much would social distancing, you know, select that one over another one um, and whether that is significantly more or less than it would have been um, otherwise. That's something, something just to think about. Um, I don't know the answer to it, but um, it is something that I was thinking about when, when looking at this question. And there's another thing that because um, mutations are mistakes, the SARS-CoV-2 virus could mutate in a good way, right? So it could become, you know, less transmissible just, just because a, a mutation is a mistake. Um, so it could, could become, could mutate in what we call a, a good way, right? It could, you know, cause less severe disease and things like that. And... So worrying about what we do and how that could affect um, the evolution or mutation um, seems slightly illogical to me simply because mutations are mistakes, right? And those mutations have to be, to be made before they can, they can be selected for. Um, and finally, I just want to take a look at what, what some of the, the data shows that's been, that's been coming out. So, so far the genetic changes accumulating as the virus spreads are not resulting in different strains of the virus. So as we talked about before, right, a virus isolate is a virus that has, a virus that has been isolated from a patient, and all virus isolates from COVID-19 patients so far have been the same strain of the virus. So they're not different strains even if they have changes in their genome sequence, right, because a virus strain is an isolate with a bi different biological property, um, which might be binding to a different receptor or having a distinctly different stability at higher temperatures. Virus isolates must differ from the original strain in a fundamental property, thus conferring a, a new property to the virus for them to be considered a different strain. And so everything that we've seen so far is really all the same strain of this virus. Um, so that's, that's what we're talking about, the difference between isolate and strain, is that these isolates just have these slight differences that don't really affect the virus in a fundamental way that would make it a different strain of the same virus. Um, however, there are some, some preprints um, of articles, research articles, that claim that some isolates have different properties um, and would therefore be different strains. However, these haven't been confirmed via the scientific review process yet. Um, we, can't, we can't quite trust them yet, right? We want multiple experts to look at how the um, experiment was done to, to confirm the validity of the results 
a fairly recent preprint that came out claims that SARS-CoV-2, um, there's an isolate with an amino acid change in the spike glycoprotein D614G um, that was found to have increasing transmissibility. This was mostly found um, in Europe and North America. It is possible that this amino acid change increases viral transmission and is the reason it's the dominant strain in different geographical regions of the world. However, their emergence could also be due to the founder effect. So the founder effect is the reduction in genetic variation that results when a small subset of a large population is used to establish a new colony. Thus, the presence of super spreaders in Europe um, and North America who happen to spread this one isolate of the virus doesn't mean that the strain is more transmissible, but simply that it's more prevalent in the population because that person spread that specific strain um, to that population, right? Because they, you know, them and maybe the people around them were the, were the ones who, were, who started the spread. So virus, viruses with this D614G receptor protein could simply be virus isolates and not, not in a new strain um, and not necessarily more transmissible. And because of the founder effect, showing that a particular mutation increases viral transmissions in humans is very difficult. Many claims have been made um, for viruses in the past and none of them have been proven. Um, one example is a single amino acid that emerged, sorry, a single amino acid change that emerged in the Ebola virus. Um, there was a change in a glycoprotein in early 2015 in a West African outbreak. Um, and it was significant, subsequently found in, in all of the isolates. Um, and no proof has emerged that it was not simply because of the founder effect. Plus, SARS-CoV-2 is, is already exceedingly transmissible among humans. So for an amino acid change, such as D614G, to be positively selected and op as opposed to being maintained as a consequence of the founder effect requires selective pressure. For such an already highly transmissible virus, the nature of such selection pressure is really difficult to discern. Um, so being able to tell if this new... Um, possible strain of SARS-CoV-2 is is more transmissible is really difficult when when it's already very transmissible. Um, you know, kind of gets into to statistics, right? Is is this a significant difference? What's the what's the p-value? Um, and just a quick caveat: I'm not an expert. Um, I'm simply a science student trying to to use critical thinking to examine an issue. Um, in science, you can never prove a hypothesis correct. You can only prove, disprove the null hypothesis. So if our hypothesis is that social distancing affects the evolution of SARS-CoV-2, I simply do not believe that there is enough evidence to, to disprove um, that null hypothesis. But, you know, please um, do your own research. Um, ask your local scientist and contact me if you find, find any better answers. Just continue to, to think deeply and, you know, read the, the available science that's, that's out there. Um, and then we're going to take another short break and, and come back. Hello and welcome back. In this section, we're going to talk a little bit more um, of a more personal reflection on why having a basic understanding of genetics and evolution is important for me um, during this COVID-19 time. So a basic understanding of genetics and evolution are important for me during this time to help me understand the information, data, and research 
um, that are coming out right now and to help me um, vet the information that, that I'm hearing. There's a lot of misinformation out there. And so it's it's really valuable to me for me to have that, that background knowledge and that understanding so that, that I can vet that information um, and, and find other sources to, to look at. And then the other question is if I have a duty as a citizen of the world to have such basic understandings. And for me, I think I have a duty as a science student to have these basic understandings, especially since um, my family members and my friends have looked to me um, to help them understand what's going on, um, what to believe, and to kind of critically think about some of, some of the more out there assertions um, that have been coming out in the news. However, for people who are not in the science world, um, it's more their duty to, to listen to trustworthy sources, the CDC, the WHO, and to follow their advice. Of course, they're welcome to, to form their own opinions, but they should be supported by, by evidence um, and effort to, to make solid opinions that, that are based on evidence. Yeah, so that ends that, that short reflection section, um, and we'll be right back. And we're back. In this final section, we're going to talk about how nothing in life is risk-free and very few things are, are all or none. Um, so I'm going to discuss what my reopening policy would look like if, if I were the governor of Illinois. Um, but I want to add a quick caveat here. Reopening policies are extremely difficult to create. There are a million and one factors to consider and so many details um, that I became dizzy thinking about them. Um, these plans are and should be collaborated with on by experts in many fields, the general population, and government officials. Um, so the nature and also the nature of this virus and pandemic may also necessitate that plans be ever-changing um, and evolving. So really, patience and, and communication are really key to successful implementation of these reopening plans. And really, you know, my plan, while I tried to be, be specific, I definitely didn't think um, about all of the factors that really have to go into, into these plans um, and what it would really be like to, to be a governor of a, of a major state. So first thing um, for me in my plan, I would have testing thresholds and, and case thresholds, um, so new case per day, right, that you should have. Descending trajectory of new cases per day um, that maybe depend on right the available ICU beds in my stage or something else um, important um, that would be recommended to me by, by epidemiologists or by the CDC. Um, and those thresholds would have to be met before each phase in, in my reopening plan. So my phase one would be to open outside activities, right, sports, curbside pickup, drive throughs um, outside seating, construction, and opening any closed parks. Um, I'd also open most retail businesses, um, but with required social distancing, masks, and lowered capacities. And these lowered capacities could be figured out by determining, looking at the square footage of, of the building that these, these retail places own. And so you should have five customers for every thousand square foot. My phase two, followed by the meeting of you know, another set of thresholds, would be restricted, restricted opening of offices, right? So I would encourage the offices only be opened if really necessary, you know, for necessary personnel coming in, involving social distancing, and not requiring the wearing of masks, but definitely recommending it. Um, and so some of those businesses that might be open would be professional services, finance and insurance, administration support, um, real estate and rental leasing industries, um, as well as salons, barbershops, um, but with 
again, accommodations for, for vulnerable populations who, who work at these different places. Um, and then I would also open the CTA with a mask requirement and then right a restriction on, on how many people would, would be able to be in one car. And then in phase three, I would open dine-in services at restaurants, hotels, um, which are still open, but um, they would be able to open their dine-in restaurants, their spas and gyms. Uh, other gyms would open. I would still encourage lowered capacity and social distancing, um, but I wouldn't have that so much as a requirement. And then finally in stage four, I would open schools, arts, entertainment, including theaters, movie theaters, and museums. And for me, the, the school, opening schools in phase four is kind of, you know, it kind of depends for me. I think that as a governor, I would want to allow schools to come up with, with proposals um, that might fit into other phases, right, where, they, where they're really enforcing social distancing or having lowered capacities in schools. Um, I think it would really depend for me on what schools would be able to do um, and working with school officials in different school districts, figuring out what that could look like. But worst case scenario, right, we wait till stage four to, to open those schools that really can't make those changes. And then again, clear communication for each stage and constant work with epidemiologists and public health experts, right? Being able to, to go back a phase or not move forward if it seems necessary is really critical, right? Just because we moved into a phase doesn't mean that we're done with this. It doesn't mean that the pandemic is over, right? We are still moving slowly through these phases um, and being really, really critical and really smart about that movement. So thank you so much um, for listening. I hope this has made you think a little bit more deeply about a few things. Um, and I hope you have, have a great day. Well, that's it for today's episode of Dr. Brown's Declassified College Survival Podcast. My students and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you are a college student or know of a college student who would like to be interviewed on this podcast, please contact me at brownsciencegroup at gmail.com and we will set up a time for an engaging discussion. Please remember to subscribe, like, rate, and share this podcast so others may benefit from hearing the voices, views, and insights of these college students. Please join me again next time when I will sit down with a new group of college students. They will pick the topic. I will turn on the mic. We can all listen and reflect on what they have to say.